All right, welcome everybody to our third night of this first of two semesters in How to Get the Most Out of Your Bible. I hope everybody has a notebook. If you don't, we have a bunch at the Information Center. I just caught one person who was in the back row trying to sneak in without a notebook. And that's uh, it's not allowed, okay? So you got to have a notebook of your own or to share with uh, somebody. We also set up a few extra chairs in the back because I know it's tight up here for some of you. So if you don't have any elbow room up here or you don't like the person you're sitting next to, you can go to the, uh, the back row. So Emily started to get up. Thought better of it. I'd like to review very quickly what we covered in the first two weeks, and then we'll get into the first tab in your notebook. But just before that first tab is the four pages of introductory notes. And just take a look at that first page. And I'm just going to go through this quickly for the benefit of anyone who hasn't been here for the first two weeks. But the very first page, it says Section 1, Survey of the Bible. And a survey of the Bible course like this involves three major sections. We're going to do a survey of the Old and New Testaments, but then also uh, next year, in the second semester, we'll take some weeks to look at how to interpret the Bible and then several weeks to look at uh, how to apply the Bible. But of those three sections... The vast majority of our course is going to be on that first, a survey of the Old and New Testaments. And then in the middle of page one, we ask, uh, what is it that God has done to give the Bible to us? And God has inspired the Bible. As we saw a couple of weeks ago, that means that God is the source of the Bible. It came from him. And then if you look at page two, because the Bible is inspired, that is, the Bible came from God, that means then the Bible is without error. And so B on page 2 says the scripture is inerrant. And then it is not just inerrant, but it's infallible. That is, it has full authority. Sometimes we use inerrancy and infallibility interchangeably. They're not exactly the same. That's why we have a B and a C here. The scripture is inerrant and infallible. Inerrant is without errors. Infallible is that even though it's uh, completely without error, you could have a document that's without error that doesn't have authority. But the Bible is both, without error, And what it says and what it affirms and what it commands are all binding upon all people. And then scripture has been preserved for us. It would do no good, of course, for God to have been the source of the Bible, inspired the Bible through the human authors, if he didn't take pains to preserve it. But we saw that God has indeed done that. And then if you look at page page three, why do we need a course on the Bible? It's because the Bible is, for many people, an intimidating book. And it's intimidating for two major reasons. One, because of its age, and the other because of its size. So you have an old and large book. When you have this old, large book, people get that in their hands, and they're intimidated by it. They don't know what to do to do with it. So this course, if it does nothing else, will help you take that intimidation factor out of looking at the Bible by reducing that size to some manageable some manageable pieces. And I'll give you what those manageable pieces are in just a moment. But on page 3, we tell you that the Bible has 66 books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New. The Old Testament was written primarily in Hebrew, a little bit in Aramaic on page 4. The New Testament was written entirely in Greek. And then... I mentioned that uh, those manageable pieces that help take some of the intimidation out of the Bible, that when you when you really break down what the Bible is about, it's about three categories, three, three topics, three subjects. It's about creation, it's about the fall, and it's about redemption. Creation, fall, and redemption. And I say in the second half, bottom half of page four, that when we talk about creation, we're talking about an orientation, God giving an orientation to his creatures, to himself, to themselves, and to the world that he's placed them in. And that's what you find in the opening two chapters of the Bible, an orientation, creation. But then you have, unfortunately, you have chapter 3 of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, that tells us about the disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve. And that is what we call the fall, the entrance of sin into God's world. And that resulted in disorientation. Now, these creatures who were made for fellowship and communion with God now are separated from God. And we find them, in fact, in chapter 3, hiding from, from God. And now, things that they were made for and things that were made for them and they were to be in harmony with are now distorted. Nothing looks right. Nothing works right. 
because of the entrance of sin. And that's why we live in a disoriented world. So creation is about orientation. Sin, the fall, is about disorientation. And if the Bible left it at that, then we would be a miserable lot indeed. But there is this third section that the Bible is about, and that is redemption. That is God at work restoring his world to what he originally designed it to be. When you get to the very end of the Bible, you find that that full restoration has taken place. It will take place in the future. And so the Bible from beginning to end is one story centered around those three those three categories of creation, fall, and redemption. Creation is orientation, who God is, and what he expects from us. The fall is the entrance of sin, disorientation, who we are and what our problem is. And then redemption is God's restoration to his original design, and that is what God is doing about what is wrong with his world. And I say further at the bottom of page four that it's about those three things, but you could even refine the Bible's message a bit further because every passage that you read about was written about or for people in situations before God. You see that line there, people in situations in the presence of God. People were made for God. They were made to interact with God. And every person, whether they believe in God or not, whether they acknowledge God or not, they are interacting with God. They are or reacting uh, to God. And so people were made for that. And so the story you find in the Bible is about people in their various circumstances in the presence of God, interacting with God or reacting to God. And I said at the end of our time last week that if you think of it that way, people, situations, and God, you've got those three elements there. And two of those three don't change. And that's why then the Bible's message is relevant for you and me in 2015, even though its first book was written about 3,500 years ago, and its last book was written nearly 2,000 years ago. But it's still relevant because two of those three elements, people, situations, and God, haven't changed. God hasn't changed. And people are still like the people you read read about in the Bible. So with the Bible being mostly narrative, two-thirds of the Bible is someone narrating what happened to other people. So in the you know book of Exodus, you find a narrator, Moses, who wrote it describing what happened to him and what happened to the people of Israel. And you find two-thirds of your Bible is written that way. Now, if it was just narration about other people, then as you read the Bible, you would just think to yourself, well, they're idiots. What's their problem? How long does it take them to learn uh, that God made them for himself and they're supposed to obey what he says and when they obey what he says, things go better, okay? But if you read closer and a little bit more humbly, then you see yourself in those stories. And I'm convinced that one of the reasons that God has given so many of those stories so much is so that you will find your similar situations that are in your life, in the lives of the people that are narrated in the Bible. So the Bible's about people in situations before God. So in every passage you look at in the Bible, it's telling you something about God. It's telling you something about God's grace, God's character. It's also telling you something about people. People and the fact that they're made in the image of God and that that image still obtains, but that we are also sinners and struggle with sin and the effects of that sin. And if you think of it that way, then, the, the Bible is relevant for you, relevant for me, even though it's an old book. So if you think of it that way, it's about three things and really refined down to this one sentence then that takes some of the intimidation out of the book. And the size of the book is not as intimidating either because you see that it's really one storyline from beginning to, to end. Now with that, look at the first tab in your, in your notebooks. Under the first tab, you have a, a table of contents. Actually, the first page says start here. You didn't have any choice, so turn to the next page. And you've got a table of contents there. You see page two. And we're going to spend a number of weeks looking at the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament. And then I want to start actually looking then at that first page of the Old Testament, on the Old Testament, page three. So
So at the top of the page I want you to be on, it says the Old Testament, the first 2,000 years. Okay, does everybody have that? The Old Testament, the first 2,000 years. So it's page, at the bottom it says three, correct? Okay, page three. Now, I, now, you know what? That's classic. So Beth tells us it's all page two. And then, and then, and then when somebody shows her, it's a different page. She leans over to Larry and says, you dummy. Okay. So this is Genesis chapter three all over again, right before our very eyes. All right. Thank you for that illustration, Beth and Larry. We like to help out when we can. Page three, it says the Old Testament, the first 2,000 years, and the Old Testament. So what about that? The Old Testament, sometimes uh, referred to as the Old Covenant, and you might write next to that uh, the Old Contract, the Old Agreement. Because there was a former, thus old, arrangement that God that God gave. And that old arrangement, that old contract, that old covenant has been now superseded by a new testament, a new agreement, a new covenant. So God has given instructions in his word variously at different times. So let me illustrate what I mean. When you, uh, if you think about being Adam and Eve in the garden, the instructions given to Adam and Eve were very explicit and very, very clear and very simple. That you may eat freely of all the trees in the garden, but of this one tree in the midst of the garden, you may not eat. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And God told them, giving them this orientation to himself and his world, God said, I placed you here in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15 for you to, to worship me, to serve and, and obey. So you're to serve and obey me, and I'm giving you one prohibition, don't eat from this tree. And this is a test of their obedience to God and their fealty toward him. And of course we know they, they fail the test. Now, I bring that up because that instruction is unlike instructions any other human being has been given. They're the only two human beings that were ever given that instruction. Uh, don't eat of this tree. That's not an instruction for you, is it? You don't know where the tree is. I don't know where the tree is. The tree got destroyed in the, in the flood. And they got banished from the garden anyway. So they're the only two people. So God has given different instructions at different times. I mean, that was one time frame where God gave instructions. And then God governed his world after the banishment of the man and the woman from the garden, not through this single command or single prohibition and then one command to, to worship me, but he then governed his world through the conscience of, of people, uh, the natural conscience that they have because they're made in the images, image of God to know right and wrong. I mean, God had not said don't murder when Cain murdered Abel. But Cain knew he was guilty. Anyway, he's guilty of violating something that God's instilled in the conscience of the creatures that he has, he has made. And then, uh, after that, we're going to see, beginning this Sunday, because we're going through the book of Genesis during our 9.30 hour, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 6, and we're going to see that God saw all of the evil among the humanity that he had made and that the thoughts of mankind's heart was only evil continually. And so God determined that he was going to destroy humanity. And we know that he did in the flood with the exception of eight, eight people. Now, after the flood, God institutes some rules for how people are going to govern themselves. And we call that civil government. That God says that there are going to be rules around which humanity is going to organize itself. And among those is Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6, Genesis 9, 6. Where God says that if anyone sheds man's blood, he will have his own blood shed. 
For in the image of God, he has made mankind. And so now this thing that was a matter of conscience, God codifies and he enforces through civil government. Then you have yet a fourth way that God uh, is governing the affairs of his world. Uh, A guy named Abraham is introduced at the end of Genesis 11 and chapter 12, chapter 12 on for several chapters. The story revolves about around Abraham and around his, his family. And God gave Abraham a promise. And God says to Abraham that I'm going to give you a seed. And through your seed, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And I'm going to give you a land that's going to be belong to you and your people. And he even gives the boundaries of where that land is, is going to be. So now God is governing his world through this promise that he has made to this specific man and then his, his lineage. So that's a fourth way in which God is governing his world. Sometimes that first, uh, that first way with Adam and Eve is called time period of innocence. Uh, that second period is called the time period of conscience. Uh, the third one. It's called civil government. Fourth, promise, that God made these promises to to Abraham. But then after that, a new person comes on the scene that is central to the one story of the Bible. And that person is, is Moses. And we're introduced to Moses in the second book of the Bible, Exodus. And Moses becomes God's lawgiver. God gives his law through through Moses. And now the, the uh, affairs of God's world are going, to be, are going to be governed through his law. So that's a, a fifth way that God is governing his world, through law. And actually law dominates the rest of the first part of your body. And in giving that law, God makes, God makes this agreement, the covenant, uh, that they are bound by the law that he is, that he is given. And that obtains through the rest of the first part of your Bible that we call the the Old Testament. Now, um, that's why we call it the Old Testament. Because when you come to the beginning of the New Testament, there's a new lawgiver introduced. And this new lawgiver is Jesus. And Jesus is the one that has been pointed to throughout the pages of the first part of your Bible. And now he comes on the scene. That's the way the New Testament begins. And one of the things you find Jesus doing fairly early on in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 is giving the Sermon on the Mount. And in the Sermon on the Mount, he is saying things like, You have heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say to you. You guys remember that? Now, who who is Jesus (laughs) to say, You've heard what they used to say. But I, on my own authority, say to you, this is this new lawgiver now that has come, that has replaced Moses. In fact, in John chapter 1, John chapter 1 and verse 17, the Bible says this, The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, making a contrast between those those two. So now the, the central figure is Jesus, And the message that is centered around his person and his work that we call the good news of the gospel. And so this sixth period is sometimes called the age of of grace. Or uh, perhaps better, the age of the church. Because Jesus gives his mission, and I talked about this in the second hour on Sunday. He gives his mission to his first followers and it's all centered around, around the church. So God's governing his affairs different ways at different times. And then you get to the the very end, and you've got a seventh and final way that God is interacting with humanity. And that is through the future kingdom. The future kingdom that's been promised in the first part of the Bible but has now come to fulfillment yet in the future. And you find it spoken of in the third to the last chapter in the Bible. Revelation chapter 20 talks about the thousand-year kingdom. Now, I tell you all of that to say God has dealt with humanity different ways at different times. And I see seven different 
ways in which God has instructed mankind in order to bring glory to to him. Now, even if you don't buy all seven of those, if you go, you know, there's not a whole lot in there about that period of conscience. That's true. It's only a few chapters. And there's not, not a whole lot in there about, you know, the period of civil government. It's true. There's only a few chapters. Now, it covers a long period of time, but it's only a few chapters. So if you say, I don't, I don't know if those are separate schemes of God, that's okay. Look, when you read through the Bible, you at least have to have four different ways, at least four, that God has dealt with humanity differently. I gave you seven. The four you got to have are the first one, Adam and Eve, because that's a distinct way, isn't it? Nobody else has had the Adam and Eve thing. The law, through Moses, I mean, that's a specific way of people relating to God. Here's a series of laws and ceremonies and sacrifices that you are to participate in in order to interact with me, God says. So you've got innocence, you've got the law, you've got the age of grace or the age of the church, inaugurated by Jesus, and then you've got the future kingdom. Those four. Those four have a lot said about them. And they are distinct. So those are sometimes called dispensations that God has dealt with his world through different dispensations. Now, where did that word dispensation come from? I made it up. (laughs) It's actually a Bible word. You'll be glad to know. And you find it in places like Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. And in Ephesians chapter 3, in verse 1, uh, Paul is, the Apostle Paul is writing, and he says, uh, surely, uh, he, he says, uh, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. He says that in chapter 3, and actually in verse 2. In the first verse, this is what he says. He says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. And if you look at Ephesians 3, you'll see, he says, for this reason I kneel before the Father, and then in the NIV there's a dash. After that's At the end of verse 1, just a dash. That's all it says. For this reason I kneel before the Father, dash. And then in verse 2, it says, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. Say what? Well, if you look down in verse 14 of Ephesians 3, you find him picking up where he left off in verse 1. He comes back to this, I kneel before the Father. So it's like he's writing, and he says, you know, for this reason I kneel before the Father, and then his mind is just flooded with the marvel of the fact that God has disclosed to him, to Paul, all of these wonderful things about his dealings with mankind now in the age of grace, in the age of the church. That starting in verse 2 all the way down to verse 13, he just starts going off on that. And then he doesn't pick it up again until verse 14, this whole I kneel before the Father. Now, what does he say in between? That was so marvelous to him that he broke off what he was writing. That for this reason, I kneel before the Father. Surely you've heard about the administration. What does he say? Well, verse 2 of Ephesians 3. Surely you've heard about... The administration. That's what it says in the NIV, administration. If you had a King James, it says instead of administration, dispensation. So dispensation is actually a Bible word. And it's a Bible word from, among other places, um, Ephesians chapter 3. And Paul says, surely you've heard about the dispensation of God's grace given to me on your behalf. Dispensation. Now, what does it mean? It's a translation of one Greek word, of a Greek word, oikonomos. Oikonomos, which is a compound of two Greek words, oikos and namos. Oikos, there's a yogurt called oikos, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yes. All right. And, but oikos is actually a New Testament word, a New Testament Greek word. And it means house. Oikos means house. And namas means law. 
Soy oikonomos means house law or house order or house rule. So here's what a dispensation is. A dispensation is a recognition of the fact that God is the owner of the house. And God orders his house different ways at different times. God gives different house rules at different times. So there's the dispensation of innocence. That's how he ordered his house at the beginning. Here's the garden, and here's what you're supposed to do. And then there's the dispensation of the law. Here's the house order. Here are the house rules. This is how I'm governing my house, my world, at this time. And then there's the house order, house rule of God's grace or the, or the church. And then there will be the house order, house rule, the dispensation of the kingdom. Now, I tell you all of that because two of those, two of those four are given in the first part of your Bible that we call the Old Testament. And the old covenant, the old agreement, the old arrangement is specifically about the law, the dispensation, the house order of the law that God gave that has now been done away in Christ. So now that Christ has come, we are no longer under the law. And the Bible is quite explicit about the fact that we are no longer under the law. In fact, not only explicit about it, Paul, the one to whom God gave this dispensation about God's grace... He gets very exercised in the New Testament about anybody who would try to put you under the law in any way. So we're not under the law. Uh, We're not under any aspect of the law that God gave to Moses. But we're now under Christ's law. He's the new lawgiver. And so you have the New Testament versus the Old Testament. Now, that's why we have those two things, those two sections, Old Testament and New Testament. You have these two major contracts, two major covenants, two major agreements, two major ways of God dealing with with his world. We call those dispensations because the Bible calls them dispensations. All right, top of page three again. The Old Testament. And there's the Old Testament the first 2,000 years. So what does that imply? That there's a second 2,000 years. And the first 2,000 years of your Old Testament are dealt with in the first 11 chapters of the Bible. Now, this is why I'm doing this series in Genesis, but I'm actually not going through the whole book of Genesis. We're going through the first 11 chapters uh, because those first 11 chapters cover 2,000 years of history and they're foundational to everything else that follows. So the three things that I said the Bible is about, creation, fall, and redemption, You've got all three of those things in actually the first three chapters of the Bible. And then everything else that flows from it is an explanation, a carrying out of those three foundational things. And those first 11 chapters cover, as I say, 2,000 years of, of history. So top of page three, the Old Testament covers 4,000 years of history. But the first 2,000 years, or half of the Old Testament in terms of time, is covered by the first 11 chapters of the first book of Moses called Genesis. Now, I want to stop there, and I want to talk about the first book of Moses called Genesis a bit. And the reason I do want to talk about Genesis being called the book of Moses is because what we're saying with that is Moses wrote Genesis. But that raises a question if you're still awake. And the question is, You know, you said that it starts out with creation, and I know my Bible a little bit. You're thinking to yourself, very first verse is, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And then it gives gives you what happened on days one through six, and on the seventh day God rested. And then in chapter two it gives you specifics about day six, the creation of, of mankind. And the question you should be asking yourself is, how does Moses know any of this? Because Moses is not around for any of this, is he? So how does Moses know any of this? That's a very good question. I'm going to ask Dr. Combs this week. No, I'll tell you. I'll tell you now. Why? But before I do that, uh, someone shut the window. And I'm not asking who shut the window. 
But oh, you want me to shut the window? No. You want me to do it? Please. Yeah, yeah. thank you. I'll go first little first. Thanks for your help. Bro. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Huh? All right. Yeah. I it was so, um, so Moses wrote the first five books, actually, of your Old Testament. But in particular, you know, there's these first this first book. And the first book is of interest for all the reasons I gave. It's foundational. All of the things that the rest of the Bible is about are contained there. But Moses writes it, and he's not there. Now, for Exodus, he's there. And for Numbers, and for Leviticus and Deuteronomy, he's there. But for Genesis, he's not. So where is where is Moses getting his, his information? So where is he getting his information? God. Well, right. Okay. So, so the only person who's who's there at the first moment of creation is is God, right? So ultimately, it's going to come from God, but then it's going to have to come to Moses. So, how does it come to Moses? And there's reason to believe that the way it came to Moses was largely through oral history. That is, it was passed on. And also through some written history as well. Now, why do, I, why do I say that? I say there's a reason to believe that. Let me give you a reason to believe that. Um, in Genesis chapter 10, Genesis chapter 10, and verse 19, Genesis 10, 19. Here's what it says. So the NIV changes from an 84 to a 2011. So I have to get a new NIV, a new new international version. <laughs> that is um, the 2011 version. And like the page, you know, you just it takes forever to break in a Bible, you know. <laughs> and I had the 1984 version broken in really well. So I'm ticked, but let's move on. Okay? <laughs> Genesis 10. <laughs> And at the end of verse 18, it says, Later the Canaanite clans scattered, and the borders of Canaan reached from Sidon toward Gerar, as far as Gaza, and then toward Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zebaim, as far as Lasha. Now it's just given these geographic locations. What does that have to do with anything? Well, here's what. In verse 19, when it says, The borders of Canaan reached from Sidon, Toward Gerar, it's literally not just toward Gerar, it is as you go toward Gerar. So this this location reaches from Sidon as you go toward Gerar. Alright, and then we read on. And then toward, which is literally not just toward, but and then as you go to Sodom and Gomorrah. Now here's the thing. Um, Sodom and Gomorrah had already been destroyed by the time of Moses. In fact, they had been destroyed centuries before Moses. And yet here in Genesis chapter 10, you have it saying, giving geographic location and saying, this is located as you go toward Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, think about a contemporary example. The Twin Towers in New York that aren't there anymore. But we know them as a landmark that existed prior to September 11, 2001. And if you were to read a set of directions that said, here's how you get to this location, and you go here and you go, and then you go straight as you go toward the Twin Towers, what would that suggest to you as to when those directions were written? Before 2001. Before 2001, right? So this instruction that Moses has in Genesis chapter 10 was written before Moses. was written before the time that Sodom and Gomorrah was, was destroyed. At the time that was written, the people to whom it was written knew where Sodom and Gomorrah was. And that's why we're able to say, <clears throat> as you go toward Sodom and, and Gomorrah. You have other indications that the 
there were written accounts that Moses used in the development of the book of Genesis. We saw one of them just this past Sunday in Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5 and verse 1 starts this way. This is the written account of Adam's family line. Now notice that phrase. This is the what kind of account? The written account. So Moses is writing, but he's taking from a written account of Adam's family line. So there's a written account of Adam's family line, and you've actually got a bunch of these accounts of family lines that Moses is drawing from. So there are these indications then in the book of Genesis itself that Moses is drawing from pre-existing material, some of it pre-existing written material. Now, does that mess up your view of the Bible being inspired? I mean, who were these people who wrote these accounts? If they're not Moses, and if Moses is borrowing stuff from other people, if Moses is plagiarizing the book of Genesis, okay, then is the book of Genesis inspired? And this is where the definition of inspiration that I gave you two weeks ago becomes very important. Because remember, inspiration is not first and foremost about to whom it was given. Do you guys remember me emphasizing that? But rather, it's about from whom it came. And inspiration, our definition of inspiration, back on page two, I think it is, in your introduction, emphasizes the fact that God superintended the process so that in the words of the original autographs, the human authors composed and recorded without error what God wanted written. So that composing and recording and God's superintending could have, and in fact I'll prove to you did, actually come from a number of sources. But God's overseeing the entire process so that the final product, the writing, the scripture, it's the scripture that's inspired, not the writer. It's the scripture, the writing. That what they wrote was precisely what God wanted written. So you have these indications that there were these written records that Moses used. But not only Moses in Genesis, you have some other indications. In Proverbs 22 through 24, Proverbs 22 through 24. In the middle of Proverbs 22, you have something called the 30 sayings of the wise. The 30 sayings of the wise. And in fact, a lot of your Bibles, in the middle of Proverbs 22, there'll just be a heading that says 30 sayings of the wise. And then you have saying one, saying two, and you got these 30 wise sayings. And they go all the way into chapter 24, Proverbs 22, 23, and 24. 30 sayings of the wise. Now here's the thing. Those 30 sayings of the wise look very much like the 33 sayings of an Egyptian wise man named Amenemope who lived before the time that Proverbs was written. So if you don't have a good definition of inspiration, if you think that inspiration is the inspiration of the writer, well, now we've got this pagan Amenable P guy. Either he got religion <laughs> or inspiration ain't what we thought it was. Inspiration is the final product and the writers gathering and using and composing such that what they wrote is precisely what God wanted written. Here's another example. In the books of 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Kings, 17 times in those two books, you have mentioned something called the annals of the kings of Israel. So you'll read about these kings and how long they reigned, and then the writer of 1st and 2nd Kings will say, and these are all found in the annals of the kings of Israel and Judah. Well, what is that? That's this record kept at City Hall in Jerusalem or somewhere of who was mayor for how long. I mean, it's just like that kind of record that we've had. 
of who was mayor and for how long and then who succeeded him. And that's why 17 times you have the writer of First and Second Kings saying, this is where I got this from. Now, if you have a proper understanding of what inspiration is, it's the, the product, it's not the writer, it's the product. Certainly God using the writer and God preparing the writer and all of that, but it's the final product, and the final product includes their gathering and uh, editing and composing material in several cases from other places. So where did Moses get his stuff? Ultimately, it came from God. Much of it undoubtedly came orally, but then some of it clearly came in written form as as well about events that he was not there personally to see. All right, page three again. The Old Testament covers this 4,000 years of history, the first 2,000 years, or half of the Old Testament is covered in the first 11 chapters of the first book of Moses called Genesis. Now, we, uh, we talk about there being 4,000 years of Old Testament history, 4,000 years, which means we should stop and deal a little bit with the fact that many people don't believe that, that many don't be- people don't believe that there were only 4,000 years of history from creation to the end of the Old Testament. I mean, when was the last time you were in a biology class and your biology teacher told you that the age of the earth is like 6,000, maybe 10,000 years old? If your biology teacher told you that, then you were in a Christian school, okay? And I didn't go to a Christian college, and I wasn't told that. I was told uh, something quite different. A lot of zeros. A lot of zeros after that, yeah. For how old they say the, the earth is. So... So what about what about that? And and the fact that the the scientific community says that intimidates Christians. Now not all scientists say that, to be sure. Thankfully, thankfully there are believing scientists who have gathered and marshaled lots of scientific evidence for the historicity and truth and accuracy scientifically of what the Bible says. But a lot of Christians are intimidated by that, and so they seek to accommodate the Bible to what the scientific community says. And one way to try to do that is to say, hey, look, this whole thing about God creating the world in six regular days is not really the deal. Because here's why. Because those are not really six days like we know. They're really six undefined periods of time. Six ages. And so who knows how much time could have gone between day one and day two and day two and day three. There could have been thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of years between those because these are not literal days, say they. Now, are they literal days? Well, here's how you know they're literal days. Uh, Let me give you three reasons. One, that the Hebrew word for day is yom. Like yom kippur, the day of atonement, yom. And whenever the Hebrew word yom is used with a number, like first or second, it's always, always a regular day. Every time in the New Testament, it's used with a number, like the first or the second day. It's always a 24-hour regular day. Now, there are times where the word day is used not without, without a number. And then it just means something an undefined period of time, like the day of the Lord or the day of God's vengeance. But it doesn't say the first day or the second day there. But whenever in the Old Testament it says first day, second day, it's always a regular day. And that's what God says in Genesis 1, isn't it? That there was the first day, and then when he creates, there was the second day and the third day. So that's one reason. Yom with first or second is always a regular day. But here's the second reason. You know, it's almost as if Moses writes this anticipating that there'll be some people who will go and say, these aren't regular days. <laughs> so just in case there'll be any people who will do that, let me add, quote, the evening and the morning were the first day. So after every day, it says that, doesn't it? And the evening and the morning were the first day. 
So it's like the Bible's going out of its way to say, okay, you got that? But here's the third reason. In Exodus chapter 20, Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. Exodus 20, 8 through 11. Now in Exodus 20, that's where God is giving the Ten Commandments to Moses. And the fourth commandment is to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. But then God goes on to give an explanation as to why you're supposed to remember the Sabbath day. For because in six days the Lord your God created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. And on the seventh day he rested. And so you, under the law, are to remember the seventh day and rest as God did. Stop your labor. Cease your labor for that day. Now, let me ask you, how long was the Sabbath day? How much rest did those guys get? They get one day. Yeah, I'm sure there were Israelites under the law who were going, you know, these are indeterminate periods of time. (laughs) So when somebody said, get your carcass out of bed and go to work the next day, they said, hey, the Sabbath's not over. (laughs) Yeah, it is. It's only one day. No, I think it's an indeterminate period of time. Okay? Right? No, it's it's one day. You got one day. And the reason you got one day is because the other six days were just like it. So if the other six days were indeterminate periods of time, so was the seventh day, so was the Sabbath, which, of course, was was not the case. And so the account given in Genesis is that this was created in six, everything was created in six regular 24-hour days. Now, one other reason that it cannot be ages is because the Bible teaches that a death came into the world as a result of sin. Death came into the world as a result of sin. Well, you can't have any death, any any sin in the world until you have humanity to commit it. And you can't have any death in the world until sin has been committed. So if you have this as indeterminate periods of time, then you have death going on over long periods of time before sin is ever committed to bring that death. So the Bible teaches that the cause of death is sin. And the wages of sin is what? Death. And through the sin of one man, death came upon all men, Romans chapter 5 tells us. So there's a theological reason and a very direct biblical reason as well that it cannot be indeterminate periods of time. So, you can either believe the Bible, or you can believe evolution, but you can't believe both. Some try to, though, don't they? Well, that's what what I'm talking about, you know, harmonizing, trying to harmonize it by saying these are indeterminate periods of time and all that. But you can either believe evolution, or you can believe the Bible, but you you can't believe both, all right? So, what do you do, college student, who's being told that science has proven absolutely that the universe is uh, is uh, ancient and uh, certainly beyond the six ten thousand year range. Well, here's what uh, here's what you can do. You can write down what I'm going to say to you, which is that there are two types of evolution. Two types of evolution, and there are two types of science actually, and there are actually two views of history. So I want to give you all three of those. Two types of evolution, two types of science, and two views of history. Two types of evolution, two types of science, and two views of history. Now, what are those two types of evolution? They are micro and macro. Micro and macro. So what does micro mean? Micro means small, tiny. Macro means large. So there's small evolution and there's large evolution. Now, why does that matter? Here's why. Because we actually, or at least I actually, believe in evolution, but I just believe in small evolution, microevolution. That is, that in certain environments, there are changes that take place uh, that uh, 
that uh, cause a species to evolve or change into something different. And you can, you can see that in a laboratory. You can take a fruit fly and you can stick a fruit fly you know, in an oven or a microwave and you, can, and you can douse it with radiation and then you get a really ugly fruit fly coming out of that, okay? Weird things happen to your fruit fly that, you know, another wing is grown, another head is grown, all kinds of deformities happen. So this, there's a sense in which microevolution has happened. Small changes have happened to this fruit fly because of environmental factors. And there's no reason to deny that. You can watch it. But here's the thing. That's not macroevolution. <laughs> Big evolution means this. Not that a fruit fly grows more fruit fly stuff. See, that doesn't help the evolutionists. If all that comes out of your crazy-looking fruit fly is another fruit fly wing or another fruit fly head, you've still got a fruit fly. An ugly one, to be sure. But it's still that. It hasn't gone from one thing to another. To have macroevolution, you've got to go from one species to another. And here's the thing. Nobody's able to find that. Now, you would think if this has been going on for millions and millions of years, we would be tripping over examples of these. You would think. You know, every time you're in your backyard doing gardening, you would hit one of these. (laughs) But not only doesn't that happen, nobody can find it. It's not happening. But it's not there because it didn't happen. And in fact, the examples you see if you go to the Field Museum in Chicago or in your biology book where they've got the drawings, guess what those are? They're not pictures, they're drawings. They're drawings of what it would look like if we found one. So what do we call those? The missing? And they're missing all over the place. They just can't find them. Okay? So there's two different kinds of evolution. There's micro and there's macro. And the evidence for macro just ain't there. The only way they get to macro evolution is by extrapolating from micro. And imagining that under certain conditions this would happen. And this is what it would look like. All right, so that's one. There's two different kinds of evolution. There's also two different types of science. There's operation science, and then there's forensic science. Operation and forensic. Operation and forensic. Operation science is about how things operate. And that's the kind of science that most of us are familiar with. So when you were in school and you were told what science is and you were told that there's the scientific method and you were told that the scientific method begins with observation. And so you observe a phenomenon and then you have to be able to test a particular phenomenon and you have to be able to repeat. Do you all remember this? That this was the scientific method. It's observable and testable and repeatable, right? So... The observable piece of that is you're seeing how things operate. You're observing how things operate. And then you're testing them, and then you're repeating the tests. That's what most of us think of science. But when you talk about origins, where the universe and how the universe began, you're not talking about the scientific method. You can't be. Because there's nobody there to observe it. True? And you certainly can't repeat it. This is a one-time deal. So it's not operation science. It's not science that adheres to the scientific method that most of us think of. It's a different kind. Now, it's still science, but it's a different kind. And a good word for it is forensic. Forensic science is this. It takes what exists now and analyzes what exists now in order to determine what happened in the past. That's what forensics is. And so the best known forensic scientist to you and me is, um, what, was the old, what was the guy's name? Jack Krugman was Quincy. You guys remember oh, Jack Quincy? Klugman. Klugman. Klugman, that's okay. And he was Quincy. And he was, uh, he was a uh, medical examiner. And a medical examiner takes the dead body and they examine the dead body to try to find out what happened. 
That's forensic science. You didn't see what happened, but you're trying to take what you have to determine what happened in the past. So you have to extrapolate to the to, in the past from what you have in the present. So here's what's important about that. We all have exactly the same evidence. We all have the same dead body. We all have the same fossil. We all have the same number of fossils. But now we have to look at that to interpret what happened in the past. Now, one way that the interpretations of what we have in that forensic science diverge is this, in the dating methods that we use. Dating methods. And what's the most common dating method used for evolution? Carbon carbon 14 dating. And the idea there is, okay, I've got the dead body, I've got the, the bone, I've got the fossil, and I want to measure how much carbon-14 is there. And I want to extrapolate from that to determine how old, when that came into existence in the past. How old is it? So in order to do that, I have to determine how much is there and based on the size of this particular bone, how much would have been there at the beginning. And here's how I know that, supposedly. Because I know the rate of decay of radioactive carbon-14. Now, the current rate of decay. What was the rate of decay 100 years ago? Or 500 years ago? Or 1,000 years ago? Here's, here's the answer. You don't know. You don't know. So you're basing this whole calculation on the assumption that the rate of decay has been the same all the way going back. Now, what if it hasn't been? What if something big happened that would mess up the environment so that the rate of decay was completely different? Something really catastrophic. Can you guys think of anything like that? Like a flood, okay? So that is the, the next thing, the, the two views of history. You know, I said there's two types of evolution, two types of science. Two types of evolution, micro and macro. Two types of science, operation science and forensic. And then there's these two views of history. And they're big words. Uniformitarianism, which is just uniform. U-N-I-F-O-R-M. And then I-T-A-R-I-S-M. So uniform... Materianism. Okay, just sound it out. Uniformitarianism. And then the other view of history is, for lack of a better term, catastrophism. That there have been catastrophes. So uniform means it's been the same. Catastrophism says that there have been things that have happened. God has intervened. Things have not remained uniform going to the past. Things like a flood. Or, another thing that messes... Uh, let me give you an example. You know, we're talking about taking what you have in the present and using that to extrapolate to what happened in the past. Let's use another example going forward. At the current rate of population increase, how long will it take for the world to be out of food? Because there's too many people in the world. And, you know, people have calculated this for centuries. So back in the uh, 1700s, there was a guy named uh, Thomas Malthus. And Malthus was saying we would have all been extinct by now, according to his calculations of population increase. But what Malthus did was he just took, look, this is the current rate of population growth. And if you just move that forward, then we're going to be, we're not going to have enough room for people, we're not going to have enough food for people by this time. But that rate of population growth didn't hold steady. Why didn't it hold steady? Because there were famines, there were wars, there were all kinds of things that changed the rate. And what we're saying is this going backwards, 
There were undoubtedly all kinds of things that changed the rate. So that you can't take a uni- just like you can't take a uniform approach to determine population, what the population is going to be 50 or 100 years from now. You also can't take a uniform approach to determine how old a fossil is unless you assume it's been uniform from now all the way back. So two types of evolution, micro and macro, two kinds of science, operation and forensic, two views of history, uniformitarianism and catastrophism. And there's a passage that I want to give you to show you uniformitarianism next week. Okay, So we'll look at that passage when we pick up there next week.